Well, good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Thanks to those of you that are here with us and those that are watching online as well. We appreciate you joining us today. Uh, we are going to start today's service with a scripture reading from Colossians chapter 1, uh, because we are worshiping Jesus as the head and the Lord over all today, that he is above all. And so would you stand and I'll read this scripture for us as we worship this morning. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church, the head of the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. So we've come together this morning to worship Jesus above all, and we'll do that as we begin our service today. It's difficult for us, though, sometimes because we like to put other things on the throne instead of him. But he remains on the throne today and we'll worship him as such. Let's sing together. things we've done and left 
us in the way everlasting, everlasting, Lord, that we would be able to give our lives to you, and that, Lord, for everlasting, we would be with you in, in heaven. God, we look forward to that day even now, in this already but not yet world. So, God, I pray that all these things today would be done for your glory and for our growth, and we praise you, Jesus, the name above all names. Would you remain standing as we read the scripture together? Good morning. The reading for today comes from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. 
Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? Good to see you this morning. Uh, My name is Frank. If you're new, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, And if you're wondering about Redemption Church, Redemption Church is one church with nine congregations in Arizona. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and we are pregnant. We are going to be 10 congregations very shortly. Um, The Redemption North Mountain, I'm sorry, North Phoenix. Is it North Mountain or North Phoenix? I just forgot. That's terrible. Uh, Redemption North is going to be... (laughs) North Mountain, that's right. Okay. Redemption North Mountain... Uh, is going to be officially gathering sometime in January. They've already started their leadership gatherings and stuff, but they will be uh, gathering as a, as a community starting in January. So we're excited about that. So we'll, be, uh, we'll have 10 congregations on our 10th anniversary as a church. So that's pretty exciting. Um, some of you remarked on my shirt on the way in. Uh, I, people are always asking me, who are you going to vote for? Come on, Pastor, tell me. Well, I've declared I am voting for Seinfeld and Costanza for president. Um, I'm a little worried, though, about if they actually win this administration, I think the next logical step is that Kramer is going to be the Secretary of State, and that could really create some problems. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, I pray for you, because you need, you need to watch Seinfeld at some point in your life. I know it's old, but it's really good. Uh, the Ponces actually ordered this shirt for me six weeks ago because they wanted me to wear it on the Wednesday night, two Wednesdays ago, when we did that night where we had the church in the 2020 election, they wanted me to wear it then. This shirt is on such back order that it just came in on Friday. And so that might also be a harbinger of how this uh, election is going to turn out. I think that there's a pretty strong movement for the Seinfeld write-in. Anyway, uh, speaking of Wednesday nights, um, we do now have, I understand, uh, the Wednesday night, the first Wednesday night, October 7th, that's the church in the 2020 election. We have that on our YouTube channel. Uh, I think we got all of it, maybe not the first 15 minutes, but um, I know my daughter said she was able to hear the whole thing somehow, so I think it's all there if you weren't able to join us on that night. We had a ton of people here that night, very interested in that topic, um, but that's available on our YouTube channel. And then um, uh, what we did this last Wednesday night on disillusion. I've had very strong feedback uh, from what we did this last Wednesday night, strong positive feedback on how 
helpful that was for a lot of people, and that's up on the YouTube channel. These next two Wednesday nights, um, again, I'm pretty excited about. We're going to be talking about, I do a lot of marriage stuff, if you're not familiar with that, and what I've done is I've taken the marriage uh, um, material that I have, and I've geared it towards marriage during the pandemic, and specifically the challenges that the pandemic has brought to some of us in uh, the midst of marriage. So I'm going to be doing two nights on marriage in the pandemic, and hopefully on the second night we might even entertain questions from um, whoever is here. Uh, but also, we uh, started children's ministry on Sunday mornings again three or four weeks ago. Uh, for this marriage series on the 21st and the 28th, we've also, we're also going to have child care for that. So that's the first time that we're going to have child care again on Wednesday night. So if you're thinking about coming but you're worried about child care, we are going to have that uh, for the next two Wednesday nights. That's here in the sanctuary from 6.30 to 7.30, 7.45, something like that. So um, in your Bibles, if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 3, we're in the last, I don't know, third or 40% of John chapter 3 today. We've been going through the gospel of John. So we're looking at fi the last 15 verses of John chapter 3 today. Let me pray and then we'll get into it. Lord God, again, we, um, we come to you humbly because we're going to be uh, reading and trying to understand your word, and so we need your spirit to fill us, and we welcome your spirit now to help us with this. And again, as always, I just pray that as we talk about your word, that you would move me out of the way so that you would be heard, your word would be taken to the hearts and the minds of your people and applied by the Holy Spirit in that way, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So the, the great Nicodemus narrative is now in our world view, and what happens in John, the apostle's narrative of the Gospel of John, is he now returns to more about the ministry of John the Baptist. So we've, we've already dealt with John the Baptist a couple of times, but now we're back again with more of his ministry. And, and with this portion of John the Baptist's ministry uh, comes the verse that early in my Christian walk, uh, I came to Christ when I was 27, and if you didn't know, uh, I've told the story before, but I, I did not grow up in the church, I didn't know anything, never read the Bible, and God saves me when I'm 27 years old at North Phoenix Baptist Church here in Phoenix, and I began to read the Bible, and early in my Christian walk, uh, this is one of the verses that stood out to me, and that's John 3.30, where John says, he must increase and I must decrease. And I, I will tell you that now understanding the verse in context better and understanding the original language a little bit better, I'm sorry that centuries ago when whoever it was, I've read about it in church history, whoever it was that came up with the verse divisions for us, because you know the original text didn't have chapter and verse, they were just text, but whoever came up with those verse divisions, I'm sorry that they put that little 30 in there before he must increase and I must decrease, because in the Greek, John ties his complete joy to the fact that he's decreasing while Christ is increasing. And when you see that little 30 in there, we kind of disconnect and we fail to understand how important it is that John's joy is tied to him decreasing while Christ increases. And that's an important point, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a second. But this whole idea of Jesus must increase and I must decrease, this short little verse is also antithetical to every cultural mandate that you and I live under today. 
in our current time and space. And it's true, it was true even then. We think we're kind of living in a different time when humans are different today, but uh, in terms of our nature, our sin nature, we haven't changed at all. And in fact, in the first century, when John says, he must increase and I must decrease, it was completely antithetical in his current, current cultural time and space as well. In fact, I would argue that the nature of original sin in Genesis 3 is antithetical to what John says in verse 30. It's amazing how many problems in our sin can be traced back specifically to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. We can trace the problems of progressive theology back to Genesis chapter 3. We can trace the problems of New Age theology back to Genesis chapter 3. We can also uh, trace... Uh, how antithetical what John says here right back to Genesis chapter 3 because the very lie that Satan used to get Adam and Eve to eat the fruit was essentially by eating this fruit, you will increase while God decreases. And John says, no, 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 no. He must increase while I decrease. See, the root of the human problem has always been, has always been, I really need to be God, not God. It's what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, which by the way, is, is Lewis's most accessible book, and if you haven't read it, you really should read it. It's really helpful, but he says this, pride is a completely anti-God state of mind. It is the chief of all sins, and pride was at the center of the fall of humanity. When the woman saw that the fruit was good to eat, it appealed to her flesh, and it was a delight to her eyes. It was pretty, which we like, and attractive. And then it was the third item. It was desired to make one wise. In other words, it was desired to make me better than you and better than God. And that's what got her to eat it and her husband to eat it as well. So John the Baptist in one pithy little statement explains how the curse of original sin can be reversed. And he explains the attitude, humility, and worldview that every single Christian is called to have. He must increase and I must decrease. I need to put everything in my life under the lordship of Christ. So that's a little preview of what we're going to talk about today, but now we're going to zoom out and look at the entirety of this 15-verse narrative, and we're going to start with um, this first little paragraph that is really the setup for the whole narrative, and, and you can see how it sets us up. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing, and John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. So, like I said, verses 22 through 24 are setting, uh, setting the stage for this next gospel story that we have here. And, and, and it's the last time that we're going to actually see John the Baptist in the gospel of John. John the Baptist is talked about uh, in great detail in two of the other Gospels. And, and that the story that the other Gospels tell about John the Baptist is when he is put into prison and then he's executed. Uh, John, the apostle, does not tell us the story. He references it. He says this is all happening right before John got put into prison and was executed. We have that story in Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 14, if you want to read it. It's an incredible story. And it happens pretty soon chronologically after um, this narrative here. And we know that this story is true because not only do the three, three of the four Gospels record the fact that John the Baptist was put into uh, prison and executed, 
but also Josephus, who is the very famous first century Roman Jewish historian, wrote about the fact that John the Baptist was put into prison and was executed. So we have historical records that are outside of the Bible even that, that talk about it. So that helps us with the veracity of this story. Now, also, in this last time that, that we see John the, Bob, John the Baptist in this gospel, it is yet another stellar testimony of John the Baptist's understanding of and reverence for Jesus. Again, if, if we understand the context that most of these readers were reading it in in the first century, they would have easily understood that these three verses we just read is setting up some tension. There's going to be some tension in these next few verses, and there is. And what the problem is, is that we have two completely, mostly Jewish baptism events going on. And so the professional religious people have come in and they're seeing, there's, there's all this baptism activity going on. There's one camp over here and one camp over here across the, 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 the Jordan. And the professional religious people, the perps, saw this and they would have gotten nervous about this because they didn't authorize any of it. If you're going to go and baptize, you have to be duly authorized by the Sanhedrin, by the by the, the Jewish ruling council. And, and for us, rather than immediately dismissing the concerns that the perps have, I think we should at least be able to understand their nervousness. False teachers and false messiahs were always a threat to doctrine, just like today. False teachers and false messiahs have always been a threat to doctrine. Now, they were ultimately wrong about this movement, but they usually weren't wrong in other instances. But then besides that tension that's there, there's also going to be this assumption that there's a competition between the two baptism camps as well. This might shock you to know this, but religious sects in the first century, that's S-E-C-T-S, religious sects in the first century, were very competitive. Very competitive. So... False teachers, competitive ministries. I'm glad that that doesn't happen to us today in the church. That's so helpful. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. And so that leads us into these five verses, six verses, uh, that really give us the tension here. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from, from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Should be a colon there. No verse 30. His, he must increase. I must decrease. So verse 25. Again, we see that water to the Jews. We've talked about this for several weeks. Water to the Jews in the first century meant purification. It's a sign of repentance and cleansing. But now to us today... In the Christian church, the waters of baptism means dying uh, to Christ, dying to ourselves, to Christ, and being raised to walk in a new Christ-centered life. Baptism is this outward sign of the inward death of ourself and resurrection to new life as a Christ follower. And so we understand that, but then here's where the real tension comes and what John deals with in his response. Verse 26, and they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you 
across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. What is this about? Well, in verse 25, there's the issue of the interpretation of the purification of water, which is a common conversation then. But really here, what's happening is the debate about the purification of water, this conversation, was being used as a way to bring up something much more fleshly or or worldly. And that would be ministry competition, ministry comparison, ministry jealousy, ministry envy. In other words, these guys are trying to stir up basic down-home pride and coveting and gossip and drama. You know, it's everything that true Christian ministry today is about and should be about. You know, whose ministry is the biggest, whose budget is the biggest, whose ministry is the best, whose ministry is the most cutting edge, who has the most people, who is the most influential. It's everything that the church should be about today, amen? And what we see here is how people like to rile things up. Have you ever noticed how people like to rile things up? I know it's awkward. We're in the church. We don't want to talk about how good Christian people are riling things up. All right. Let me say it this way. Can I get an amen? People at your work, they like to rile things up, don't they? Yeah. That's just who we are. We love the drama. Uh, Samuel Lee, who is the chaplain of the Florence prison complex here in Arizona, I've known him for years and years and years, he constantly tells pastors, he says, I pray that you are delivered from people. I pray that you are delivered from people. And when he says that, the interesting thing about that is he's, he's not just talking about the occasional person who in your congregation might try to stir things up, but really what he's talking about are other ministry leaders and pastors who are prone, unfortunately, to comparison and competition and drama, and jealousy. He prays that the church would be delivered from people holding things so tightly and being proprietary about their ministry. You know, in case you haven't noticed it, we live in a really wild world, even in the church. And and I want to be accurate here. There was, in their context, the way they did religion, There was a tangible benefit for them in their day to have more disciples because it meant more income, it meant more power, it meant more influence and status. I mean, it's natural to chase those things, but we shouldn't chase them for the wrong reason. And I would never begrudge, here you go, this should be an obvious statement to you, but I would never begrudge a minister making a paycheck. In fact, there are passages throughout the Bible that speak favorably of taking care of those who teach and shepherd the church. But if anybody ever goes into ministry for the money and the power, just go go open a Chick-fil-A instead. You're going to be a lot happier. Trust me. It's going to be a lot better. And then you look at the next two verses, 27 and 28. And what John does in those verses is exactly what Tom Trader, our founding pastor, and Alistair Begg, another wonderful pastor, constantly plead with the church about. Keep the main thing the main thing. That's what John is saying. Keep the main thing the main thing. You're trying to distract me, and I want to keep the main thing the main thing. John says, look, I'm not in any competition. I can't compete with God. And I told you, I'm not here for my own notoriety or benefit. I'm here to point people to the Savior. 
Why, he says, is it so hard for you to just let God be God? Here's another way to put it. Why is it so hard for religious people to let God be God? Why is it so hard for religious people to let God be God? He says, either come to Jesus or just go somewhere else and peddle your drama. Go stir up some other people. We're, we're about the business of Jesus over here in this ministry. And then to help make his point, John the Baptist tells a little parable in, in verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Here's what he's saying. Here's the coded language, in case you're not sure about this. The bride is the church. That's us. And the bridegroom, the groom, the husband, is Jesus. So he's talking about Jesus here. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, now, he's, now John is talking about himself, John the Baptist. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. The best man finds his joy in the groom, not in himself. This allegory, this parable is perfect, and they understood it right away. They got it right away. The friend of the bridegroom is what we would today call the best man. I told you a few weeks ago that I do a lot of weddings, and so I'm around a lot of best men and maids of honor and in-laws and mothers of the bride and all of those people. Well, the job of the best man, if you're about to be a best man sometime, think about this and, and hear this. The job of the best man at a wedding is to express and give the most honor to the groom. It is not to steal the show. But I've been around a lot of best men who thought that their job at the wedding was their opportunity to steal the show, to shine, to be the center of attention. If you watch The Office... Think about any time Michael Scott goes to a wedding. That's what we're talking about here. You need to decrease in the presence of the groom. That's what John the Baptist is saying. And these best men, they have very little self-awareness when it happens. They make things awkward for, uh, for everyone. And if they're married, I can tell you that on the way home in the car, divorce is contemplated. I can just tell you that that's what's going on. Here's what John's saying. I am the best man. And my job is to honor the groom. And I'm not going to be trapped as you're trying to trap me into some goofy meme where I'm going to try to steal the show. Because my joy comes from honoring the groom. My joy comes from pointing you to the Messiah. You know, back in their day, at their wedding, just like today, one of the responsibilities of a best man was is at the reception, the best man gives a speech, Right? And it should be a good speech. If you're going to be a best man, work on your speech. Don't just wing it. Work on your speech. It should be a good speech, and it should be something that holds the attention of the audience. But it is also a speech that should humbly testify to the honor and the dignity of the groom. The best man's wedding speech points to and testifies about the groom. And in the process, what he should be doing is telling the bride and her family, you've got a good one there. You've got a good man there. So think about this now. Jesus is the groom, his church, us, we are the bride. And the bride not only got a good man, but we got God. We got God. And also one more thing about this language. The bridegroom language in their Jewish context is a clear reference to the Messiah 
who is to come that the prophets talked about in the Old Testament. John the Baptist is telling his audience, the one that you've been waiting for for hundreds of years, it's him, it's Jesus. Why are you over here talking to me? Go and talk to him. Because he must increase and I must decrease. Uh, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago, we did Frankly Speaking too, and Steve Wheeler interviewed me. It was on a Wednesday night, and at the end, he had uh, like this rapid-fire 15 questions that he just wanted quick answers to, and one of the questions was something like, uh, what's the Bible verse that's constantly on the tip of your tongue? And it, and it was John 3.30. It was, he must increase and I must decrease. And if somebody asks me that question, and I think they have a little bit longer a span of attention, then I'll actually go from John 3.30 into something that elaborates a little bit on that, which would be uh, what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. And look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, what Scripture is teaching us is that we should, as Christians, we should seek to be small. We should pursue humility. As Christians, you know, Jesus says, go the extra mile in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's reframe that just a little bit. As Christians, we should, we should be willing to go the extra chore. So here you go. If you're married, you know, and, and your honey pie sweet chicky baby decides to ask you to do something, gives you one of those little lists, okay? And I'm, I'm, that's a genderless reference there, honey pie sweet chicky baby. You can be a man or a woman and be that, okay? All right? Because we all give lists to our, our better half at some point, all right? Try this. Instead of grumbling about getting the list, add one thing to the list and do it all and see what happens. I guarantee you it'll change the ethos of your household. It'll be incredible. Here, here you go. Your friends. You know, we love our friends, right? But friends can also sometimes be a load. Can I get an amen? Right? Okay. Go the extra chore for your friends. Pick up the extra tab. I know, it's their, their, I know it's their turn this time. Okay? Here you go. Now I'm really going to meddle. How about at work? Do the extra chore at work. Go the extra mile at work. How about at church? I know. Sure. That would be my bailiwick. But yes. You know, we're regathering now, and we've got some momentum our highest attendance for, since we've started regathering in, in July is probably going to be today. This is, uh, you should have seen our first service was really full. It's, it hasn't been that full since Trey was ordained. And we have a pretty good crowd in the second service here too. And, and part of the reason is because we've opened up children's ministry again. But that also means with the regathering momentum that we have, we need some help too. We need people to start volunteering again. We need help in children's ministry Guess what? We need greeters. I think everybody can say hi to people. You're all qualified to be greeters. Go the extra chore in every context that you're in. Here you go. If we all live with this simple inversion verse, I call John 3.30 the inversion verse. He must increase and I must decrease. The curse of original sin could largely be reversed. Think about it. If we lived a John 3.30 and a Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 life, the curse of original sin could largely be reversed. It's not the atonement. The atonement is Christ on the cross. But the outworking of Christ on the cross should be John 3.30, Philippians chapter 2, and the curse of original sin could largely be 
reversed if we did that. And Jesus is always looking for genuine conversion rather than enthusiasm for the spectacular. You know, we could have church every week and turn it into some kind of a, an emotional rally. And it would be fun and it would be enthusiastic and you'd leave and, and, and you'd be really excited for 15 or 20 minutes. It's like coming home from summer camp, you know? Genuine conversion is not about enthusiasm for the spectacular, but it's about decreasing. It's about becoming small. It's about living small and living in a contented way. It's, it's one of our core values at Redemption Church. You have nothing to prove and no one to impress. That's a great core value for a church. It's truly amazing, too, that John the Baptist sees the completion of his joy in him decreasing. That's, again, antithetical to what we think in our, in our world today. We think just the opposite. We think that we need to be exalted and we'll have joy. John says, no, decrease, and that's where you'll find joy. Aaron Daly, one of our pastors, said this. You and I as human beings, what we do all the time is we're all seeking the elevated place. But in fact, humility is the elevated place. Seek Jesus, not knowledge. Seek Jesus, not content. Seek Jesus, not benefits. Seek Jesus, not self. Seek Jesus. And then John just flat out testifies as to the deity and lordship of Jesus in verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is, from above, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. There it is again. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wow. So it's not enough that John just simply declared Jesus' deity and identity as the Messiah and points people to them. He also backs up that uh, proclamation with five affirmations as Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah, Son of God, Savior, and Redeemer in verses 31 through 35. And these five affirmations that we see here then lead to the in inevitable and unavoidable truth in verse 36, which ultimately sums up all of chapter 3. And here are the five affirmations. We're going to have them listed for you on the screen. In verse 31 is affirmation number one. He, Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. The rest of us, we come from the earth, and so we're not God. Jesus is God. We aren't. But we sure try to be. I know. And this above all statement is about sovereignty, and it's about wisdom, true wisdom. So sovereignty is the idea that Jesus reigns over everything. In his reign, in his reign there is not a single maverick molecule that, outside, that is outside the purview of his reign. He is Lord of everything. And as Lord of everything, he has the wisdom that you and I desperately need but don't always seek. So his wisdom comes from a different perspective than our foolishness. And so we should seek after that wisdom as well. We, we humans really do think we have the wisdom thing wired, but we don't. We make messes with our wisdom. Our wisdom is foolishness to God, Paul tells us. Here's how, by the way, 
There's a great corollary in James' uh, letter in the New Testament to this passage here. Listen to what James writes in James chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What this first affirmation tells us is that you and I as Christians, and this is something that you and I struggle with desperately, you and I as Christians, when we're called to Christ and when we embrace him as Lord and Savior, what he's calling us to is to give him lordship over everything in our life, every last thing. The challenge is that what we do is we actually hold stuff back from Jesus. We say, we'll give you this, and we'll give you this, and we'll give you this, but there are some things over here that I'm, I, just, I just don't want you to have. I'll take care of these things. You don't have to trouble yourself with these, Jesus. And we don't give him everything. And Jesus calls us to give uh, everything to him under his Lord. Every last thing, our work lives, our relational lives, our sex lives, our, our family lives, every last thing. Even our thought life is to be given under the lordship of Christ. And, and again, I'm going to step in it here, I know, but, but I've been thinking about, you know, we've had some contentious elections in the last eight years or so, it seems. And they're only getting more and more contentious. And, and a lot of the contention is, is with Christians, between Christians. And I think I've got part of this figured out now. One of the challenges is that we're looking at our candidates as Christians, and we're realizing that there is no candidate who ever puts everything under the lordship of Christ. Now, I know some people would, some candidates say they're not even Christians. But even those who claim Christ, we know that they haven't put everything under the lordship of Christ. And we see those things. We see it in Donald Trump and we see it in Joe Biden. They have not put everything under the lordship of Christ. And so now what we're doing as Christians is we're, we're creating a list of all the things that each candidate has not put under Christ and now we're judging everybody by, by who they're going to vote for based on what they haven't put under the lordship of Christ. And there's some stuff that Biden has, put on, has not put under the lordship of Christ that are very disturbing. But guess what? There's stuff that Donald Trump hasn't put under the lordship of Christ that is also disturbing. And we've created these hierarchies, and now we're judging each other in the church based on our hierarchy of what the political candidates have not put under the lordship of Christ. You understand they're never going to do it. And I hope you understand that God is not going to hold you responsible for what Joe Biden and Donald Trump didn't put under the lordship of Christ. He is, however, going to hold you responsible and me responsible for what you and I did not put under the lordship of Christ. That should be our concern. And I understand those things are important in different ways to everybody else. And I know that's a tough deal. But ultimately, what we're arguing about is actually kind of silly. We're expecting our political candidates to live up to a standard 
that we're not even necessarily expecting ourselves to live up to. And yet God calls us to do that in Christ. He's given us the Holy Spirit to be able to do that in Christ. And it's a distraction from our own spiritual lives to place all this importance on whether or not Joe Biden or Donald Trump has the right Christian doctrine in their lives. And that's a challenge, and that's a problem, and I know it. Okay, here you go. Number two, affirmation number two. Verse 32, Jesus bears witness to his from above existence by bringing truth and wisdom that turns the world upside down. Jesus testifies from his heavenly and holy perspective about how things really are. And we ought to listen, but the sad tragedy is that we don't. He says right here, people don't follow him. People don't obey him. They've been waiting for him, and now he's here, but they don't follow and obey. We really do believe in ourselves rather than Jesus, and that leads to our own detriment and destruction. Proverbs says it clearly. The book of Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to destruction. Here's affirmation number three, it's the seal. When we receive Jesus, when God saves us, it is by, it, our salvation is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. That means that our salvation can never be taken from us. It is sealed forever and ever and ever. I talk to people occasionally and they say, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my salvation. And I always ask the same question. It's pretty simple but true. How can you lose something that you did absolutely nothing to attain? It's all God. I've said this before. I'll say it again because we need to hear it. Grace, what is the definition of grace? Grace is unmerited favor. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. It's all God. And so once he saves us, he seals us. And this, is a, this has an interesting cultural reference in their day. In first century Greco-Roman Mediterranean life, when a witness would attest to the truth of something in court, their testimony was sealed into a document that was not to ever be unsealed, and the, and the sealing was done with the hot wax and the signet of the government. And in their context, this sealing was the height of purity for testimony of truth. So what John is doing is he's giving us yet another metaphor for Jesus' sovereignty and deity. And even Paul talks about this sealing in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He's saying you can't lose your salvation. Affirmation number four is in verse 34. The only way by which we can receive the Holy Spirit is by coming first to Jesus. And Jesus is not, not only the one who empowers us by his resurrection, but he's also the purveyor of the Holy Spirit who then fills us and leads us and guides us and directs us according to his word. And then affirmation number 35. The Father, God, Yahweh, has given all things, everything, into the hands of Jesus. And this language here that, that John uses was common and understandable language for both the Jew and the Greek that was in their audience, telling them that God has given all authority, all power, all wisdom, all judgment, and all redemption into his Son, Jesus. Everything that we need is in him. There's, there's no need for anything else. And, and we should understand these five affirmations. Let me just repeat them. Jesus comes from above. He testifies to his unique above allness and wisdom. He seals us in salvation. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And all good things come from Jesus. These five uh, affirmations naturally lead to the conclusion that John gives us in the last verse of this chapter. 
Oh, I'm still in James, sorry. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That really says it all. Donald Guthrie, who's a great New Testament scholar, he writes this. John sums up the teaching of the whole chapter with this one verse. There is a heaven to be gained. There is a hell to be shunned. And there is no in-between. There's no third way. I keep hearing about a third way. It's very attractive, but it's untrue. It's false. Again, the Old Testament prophetic background so often found in this gospel is right here as well in Daniel chapter 12. I know that those of us who read Daniel, we love Daniel 1 through 6, and then chapters 7 through 12 are a little bit tough, but there's some good stuff in there, and you should read it sometime. Here at the beginning of chapter 12, God says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, there is a choice. There is a decision to be made. The kingdom of God, on one hand, or the decision to just fight it out in this world, with this world's systems which is under the leadership of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. That's our choice. Let's pray together and we'll head into communion in our last song. Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth. And I just pray that we would have uh, the courage to live it in the same, with the same boldness that you have given it, given it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't noticed, we're doing communion a little bit differently. We got together as a staff and we asked the question, by the time somebody actually uses one of those little communion kits, um, how many times has somebody else possibly handled it? And so we thought, maybe we, ought to, maybe we ought to just make it so that you're the only one that ever handles the communion kit that you have. And so we went to this new system where it's out in the lobby where you just pick it up when you come in, so you'll be the only one uh, that touches that uh, communion kit. So if you didn't pick one in, up when you came in, go ahead and head out there and grab one now, and we'll take communion together. Um, those of you who are watching on the live stream, hopefully you have your, um, uh, your elements prepared and ready to go. And we just recall that night uh, where Jesus was with his disciples, and he, and he said, look, this bread, it's, it's my body, and it's for you. It's broken. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this wine, this juice, is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that every time we do this, we proclaim his death until he comes again. It's interesting that this, is, this really is a celebration of our life. But it's a celebration of our life that came from his death. Praise be to God that he was raised and he's coming again. So let's celebrate that now.
Above all. 
worshiping, for worshiping together today. Uh, we started our service uh, with a reading from Colossians 1, and we'll end it with a reading from Colossians 1 as well. So please receive this benediction from Colossians 1, starting in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I became a minister. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. <laughs>